to share with you an experience that I think has happened to us all, but just call it to mind. <clears throat> you ever go driving on the highway, and you're with traffic, you're moving along with traffic, and then out of nowhere, just kind of zipping around you is some hot rodster, you know, who kind of was weaving through the traffic going, going on his way. Um, I think we've all kind of experienced that. My, my first reaction is one of guilt because I used to be that guy. And then after, I, I quickly progressed past that to like, man, he's going to hurt somebody. Uh, like I'm now old enough that that's, that shows up where I'm like, ooh, I hope he doesn't hurt anybody. And then I begin to feel like a little bit, like, man, he's, that's selfish to do that. When the highway to kind of act like the highway is yours to take advantage of all the law-abiding drivers to kind of enjoy the space that's provided by the law and all these law-abiding drivers. I, I get bitter at that, at that sort of person. And uh, well, anyway, so they, they d- zip off into the distance. And then there's, um, you go a few more miles and you come around the corner and you see a police car on the side of the road with the sirens on and you see that guy pulled over. That is the best gift in my life. Okay, I can't even think. Give me that for my birthday. Just, I, I love it. I love it. My, I don't know if I'm even allowed to say this, but my soul thrives when I see it, you know. And I'll almost take my hands off the wheel just to neener, neener when I drive by. Like, I mean, I'm a total hee-haw. Like, you got what you had coming to you. And I don't, I mean, I just, I love it. I once had, I don't have time for this, but I do. I was once stuck in traffic uh, coming around the D.C. Loop. Hot summer day uh, in July. Bogged down traffic near the Woodrow Wilson Bridge. It was so painful. We were wondering, like, why are we alive? Well, this, you know, mover and shaker from the city decides he's too good for the traffic. So he pulls out on the shoulder. And he's just driving down the road on the shoulder, passing everybody up. Which... You can imagine the feelings. Well, he, just as he's passing me, he didn't realize that he passed a police car, three cars behind him. And so the police car pulls right out, and, he, and so this Jeep Grand Cherokee, I still remember it, is pulled up, is pulled over, stopped about four car, two cars in front of me, and about a car behind me is this cop car. And this guy got, the Jeep guy, got out of his car with this attitude of, how dare you pull me over? And I'll never forget that the cop door swung open and a gun came out and pointed at him. And like you could see everybody around was cheering. Yeah, get him. Because that's how you feel, you know? It was the best. Well, let me give you another comparative example. Um, You're driving along and you're, you're moving along in a good clip. You might be going a little bit faster than the speed limit. Uh... And I'm speaking hypothetically, of course. You're going a little bit faster than the speed limit, and <clears throat> you come around a corner, and in your 9 o'clock vision, you see a cop car just haunting between two, two berms in the median, right? And you, like, immediately tap the brake, and then you realize, oh, don't touch the brake, don't touch the brake, because they'll know. They'll know. And so then you come off the brake, but then you start, you, hypothetically, one begins to look in your side view mirror and your rear view mirror like, dear Lord, don't let him pull out. Don't let him pull out. Don't let him pull out. And he does. He pulls out and the sirens go on and you're, oh, dear Lord. And you start praying as though you're allowed to pray about this. I don't really think we're allowed to pray about this. Or he's not listening, but I'm praying with 
a person is praying with their eyes open, and, and the cop car's coming up, and the last thing you do is slow down. You, wanna, you don't want to slow down because you don't want to admit you did anything wrong because there's still this hope that it is not you. And he comes by, passes you by, and pulls over the guy in front of you. <sighs> now, we feel a little bit differently. Like, I don't hee-haw that guy. Because there's a sense of camaraderie, like we were complicit in the sin. There's a sense that he took it for the team. You know, I almost want to drive me like, like you know, we got it. We'll do this. I'll get it next time. There's, a, there's just a sense that that guy wasn't, because, because it was what I was doing, his, what he wasn't doing really wasn't that bad. And there's a sense of, of like, but for the grace of God, there go I, right? Well, this morning, when we're reading in Luke, we're going to be reading in Luke 11, and Jesus is going to be talking to this group of people called the Pharisees, who are people that are enamored with per- purity and personal behavior. They live better lives than anyone else, and Jesus is going to come off the top rope on these people. He's going to slam them. And your tendency, because I don't really think we're a Pharisee, Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think we're that pharisaical, okay? I think our tendency might be to hee-haw these Pharisees, like dumb Pharisees, kind of to listen to today's message from an academic standpoint, like maybe today I'm learning about the abject behavior of the Pharisees, okay? This is what I want to ask you is that today as you listen, you don't listen in that fashion. You would listen as somebody who's just traveling a little bit faster than you and who got caught. That's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask that you would recognize that you share the same behavioral patterns as the Pharisees and that if left to our own devices and devoid of God's grace and caught up in the wrong community, we might very much become that kind of people, but for the grace of God. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll turn to the word. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us a soft heart. Change us, Lord. I pray especially for... Uh, those, those in this room that are, that are not yet found, Lord, find them. Uh, convert them, Lord. We pray for conversion. Um, always, Lord, and, and among this group and uh, those who may hear your word, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 11, verse 37. I want to read a few verses. It's Luke eleven thirty-seven. We're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter today. But I want to start by, I want to read about five verses, and then that should be enough to set the stage for us. Luke 11, verse 37. <clears throat> this is what it says. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be made clean for you. And Jesus Jesus goes on, and we'll, we'll go on in, in a moment. But I, I don't want us to miss what, what happened there. That there was a dinner invitation. Jesus was invited to dinner by a Pharisee. 
He came to dinner. He sat down at the table without washing his hands. And the host of the dinner acted surprised. He kind of eyebrowed Jesus. Did that. Maybe he said something, but the Bible doesn't seem it. Seemed he acted surprised. He was surprised. So I don't know if any words were exchanged. He was just surprised. Now, the washing of the hands is a pharisaical custom. It's not a hygiene issue. That's not what's at stake here. The, the Pharisee's not concerned that Jesus is going to spread a head cold. It's a custom. It, the Pharisees were very puritanical. It was very much about being pure and clean. And this custom of washing your hands was a way of expressing, like, I don't want to bring anything to this fellowship at the table that would make them unclean. That was the intent behind it. So when Jesus doesn't show up, uh, or when Jesus shows up but hasn't done it, it's, it's a brooch of custom. Now, it's not a brooch of the law. Jesus didn't break the law of Moses. It's simply a custom. Now, why he didn't wash his hands, we could talk about that for a while. I will say this. In the most heavenly sense possible, Jesus has no need to wash his hands because he is not unclean. So, at some level, it would be beneath the Christ to go through this custom of ceremonial cleansing when he is not in need of cleanliness. But for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't do it. And, and, and it's the surprise of the Pharisee that lights Jesus off. The Pharisee looks surprised and Jesus says, this is what I'm talking about. This is how you people are. This is kind of what he says. You guys are like, you're like a dish that's clean on the outside, but inside the dish, it's just wickedness and greed. And Jesus says, don't you think that the God who made the outside of the dish is as concerned about what's inside of it? Don't you think he's, he's involved in that? Don't you think he makes? No, so it's not just what the Pharisee's doing, but what's going on inside the Pharisee. He's saying, don't you think that God is interested in that? Why don't you show works of repentance that would show that there's something actually going on inside of you? That's what he does. And then he, as you'll see in a moment, he just goes from there. Boom. He lays into them. I guarantee you the next day Jesus did not say to the disciples, man, you know what I should have said? Didn't happen. Because he said it. And we should say, we should accept this from the forefront, that Jesus did not go overboard here. He's God. So the words that we're going to read, he's saying in perfect measure. And they're strong words. And Jesus didn't wake up on the wrong side of the mat. Right? This, that's not what's happening here. Somehow Jesus is, is laying into them for some purpose. Now we could hope, my hope is, is that there, was, there is some chance of repentance in this crowd. Maybe Jesus is simply casting judgment. He's going to go on to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And whoa is a very dark word in the Bible. Woe is a wrath word. It's a great calamity word. It's worst case scenario word. So maybe Jesus is coming among them to cast judgment. He has the right to do that because he will be the judge. But I, I have this hope that there is place, some place for repentance. because, And here's why I would hope that. Well, first of all, a Pharisee did invite him to the meal. That gives me hope. Why would a Pharisee do that? It was after his very difficult speech, a sermon on the sign of Jonah. So he preaches on the sign of Jonah, and then a Pharisee invites him in. Maybe 
there's curiosity. I don't mean that the guy, that the Pharisee is, follows Jesus, but maybe he's groping the darkness for the light. And the other thing that I find interesting is that Jesus accepts the invitation. If you're without hope, why waste time? But Jesus goes and speaks a very hard message. We should remind ourselves that when Jonah went to Nineveh, Jonah did not speak a kind word. He said, woe to Nineveh. You are undone. Forty days and the city will be destroyed. It was hard words that brought repentance. So maybe we might be able to hear, right? And, may, and I imagine if you are a Pharisee, nothing but someone yelling woe at you might even break through. I mean, it is of the most severe obstacle between you and the kingdom is to be self-righteous. So Jesus does this. He begins to preach to them, and he, he preaches to them in a series of woes. And we're going to walk through the woes, and, and what I'm going to ask again is that we don't think of this as, as some group of people totally unlike us. We think of this and, and choose to ask the Lord to say, Lord, how is this true in my life? And, and even if in a smaller way, in some way nonetheless. So as we preach, maybe we'll just kind of act like we're listening at the window at, at this dinner. Which, by the way, can you imagine this happening at dinner? It sounds loud. It sounds loud like this. He's doing it across the table. I, I like that. I mean, it just sounds, whoa, to me. Like someone passed the butter. Whoa is you. <laughs> it's, it's in there. So this is what he says. I'm going to read uh, 42. This is the first of six woes. Woe to you, Pharisees. Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. We might hear that in this way. Woe to those who are meticulously self-righteous. If you are meticulous about staying in God's good graces, I would say caution why, exa- why exactly are you following after the meticulousness of obedience? It may be there, right? Jesus didn't say, don't do it. He said, I wish you to practice the latter without leaving the former things undone. So we are to be obedient. But I, I would call into question your motivation behind obedience. Because you see, for the Pharisees, the way they justified themselves was by their behavior. The external behavior that other people could see, that's how they validated themselves before the Lord. They didn't have a relationship with the Lord. They didn't care for the poor. They didn't care for others. They simply, it was a self-serving faith. And that's what I would would charge you today is, is is your faith self-serving? Does the practice of your faith simply have to do with you being good enough to get to heaven? Are you suffering from a bad case of get to heavenism? Is that what's going on? Is that how you define your faith? Is, well, I do these things because I'm supposed to do these things. Which is not bad. It's just not enough. This first woe, what Jesus is calling out is the fact that all they are doing is exercising a religion of self-presentation. 
their religion that they're doing is, is, is worried about presenting themselves acceptable in the sight of man. And they don't live life in concern of others. In fact, he criticizes them. But you ignore justice and you ignore the love of God. What are the two commandments? At one point in the Bible, Jesus himself has another conversation with the, with the Pharisees and says, what's the great commandment? And they say, out of Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And he says, and I'll add another one to that. Love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What they've done is they've taken the law and they've done away with those two commandments. They neither love their neighbor, no concern for justice, nor do they love the Lord. And Jesus is saying it's an empty dish or it's a dish that's full of poison. Is your faith driven by obedience to rules? That cannot be the source of a saving faith. It can be the fruit of a faith, but it cannot be the source of a saving faith. Saving faith is a love of God and a love of others. And I will say this, this idea of concern for for justice. When I hear someone tell me they have a very private faith, I have a very hard time figuring out how to smile at that or to affirm it. But do you not have concern for the world around you? And is not your concern for the world around you informed by your faith? If it's not informed by your faith, then your faith is not worth informing the Lord of. I mean, even last Sunday, when I just, I put before the church, hey, this is an issue that's going to be happening in the state. You know, you would call it a political issue. I know in many people's spirits, they thought, here he goes. He wants me to get political. Well, scrap the word political. How about I desire that you would have a concern for goodness and justice among your neighbors? Can I say it that way? Can I say that there are wicked things among us that are happening? And the Lord desires that his people would rise up and say, we, we know a better way. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying your faith is not intrinsically private because you ought to have a concern for your brethren, your neighbors. That makes us step out. A love of the Father overflows to a love of people. That is the testimony of a faith. And for the Pharisees, this isn't happening. And he goes to the second woe. Verse 43, he says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. You see, they're so attracted to self-presentation when it reflects back on them, when the, re- when the world resonates back on them, oh, you're good people, that is where they hang their identity. Their identity is on the affirmation of this world, which comes through these honored seats and special places. And I, I, would, I would translate this as, woe to those who reap, who sow in order to reap earthly honors. Do you give in order to get recognition? Maybe nobody would admit that. Can you give when there is no hope of recognition?
True faith does not seek honor in this world. And when it finds itself in the seat of public honor, it usually is uncomfortable. Those who are truly faithful to the Lord, when you finally do get invited into the court of men and you get to sit at the most special table, be careful. You ought to be nervous because something is afoot. They are about to try to tweak you or get you to compromise. Just beware. There are, certainly, there are great times, right, when these things happen and it all turns out for the better. I'm just saying very often the ticket in doesn't come without a conversation before you get out about playing. Just think of this. University Christian Fellowship has had to be careful with how they speak about Jesus Christ on campus. They've been asked to leave. Was it Vanderbilt? Vanderbilt told InterVarsity, you have to leave campus. InterVarsity is going underground on campus. Delaware Youth for Christ. You know what they've been told? They've been told, you know, you could probably raise more money if you changed one word in your name. Guess which one that is? Is it Delaware? You think it's youth? You think people have a problem with the word for? It's Christ. Urban Promise. I talked to Rob Prestowitz. Do you know how much more money they could receive from the philanthropic forces of this world if they just shed certain faith-based precepts? I'm just saying, and I'm saying among a prominent people who give and are in places of influence, just be careful, right? The whist club is not the sanctuary of the most holy God, nor is the rotary nor is the chase center. Uh, you watch news with white, tie, white collars and tuxedos on the Waldorf Astoria raising great money for charity. I just don't know if the Lord's at that. I don't know if he got an invite. Christians, we, we seek the pleasure of God, don't we? That's what we should, we should seek the pleasure of. And how hard is that, even in our own lives? How hard is it for us to be obedient and to do a good thing and not tell anybody I, I struggle with that. My wife always ends up hearing all the good stuff I do. And I tell the Lord I'm allowed to tell her because the two have become one and we're one flesh. And if I know how good I am, she's allowed to know how good I am. That's, I, I have these questions. I, I debate with the Lord. Like, Lord, how much credit do I lose if I brag to my wife on this? Because it was good. <laughs> and there's times I have to say, Lord, I know. I know I'm losing credit. Like I can feel the Lord go, there, you did it. It's gone. It's as you didn't do it. But I have to, I have to feed this earthly man, right? This, it's a must have credit. Why? Because is, even in Christ, we are still connected and we still define ourselves by what people think about us. Can you give with no hope or desire of earthly credit? Here's the next woe. 44, woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. Now this one's darker and harder in a few different ways. First of all, it's a little harder to completely understand. But secondly, it's harder in its teaching because he's speaking to a people who are purity-minded. And he's saying to them, not only are you impure, but you are the kind of impurity that makes other people impure even unknowingly. 
So he's saying, not only are you impure, you're like a grave that people walk on, and then they walk away, and they're filthy. And I will say this, those people who gravitate to a rule-oriented, behavior-oriented, human-affirmed religion breed a contagion among other people. We would so much rather try to justify ourselves before men than stand before the Lord saying, we cannot justify, we must have Christ. It's just easier as though it were possible. It seems easier to us. And so when when someone begins to breed a religion of works in a community, the community can fall. Someone, this is how it happens, right? Someone is moved by the Spirit to stop doing a thing within the community of believers, but is not careful on how that person remembers how it was the Spirit that moved them and not, not the rule. Because it is in freedom, that is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So Christ sets us free so that we can obey him, but we are forgetful or sloppy in the way we share that with somebody. So what the Spirit did in us, we share as a rule to someone else, which weights them down. And then they try to follow the rule, and then that breeds more rule following and more rule following. And soon enough, right, there's someone in the church who's miles away from God ever even introducing that behavioral question in their life. And it's like a ton of bricks on them because you were sloppy about the source of your obedience. There is in the news, you, you see that um, it's fungal meningitis. Is that what it is? It's an epidemic, right? It's supposed to be medicine. It was shipped in medicine, a syringes that were applied for people with back pain. But in fact, it's killing them because it was a bad lot, I guess. That is what the Pharisees are, and that is what we can become. We can look like the aid, but can in fact be the disease. We can package as though it is righteousness, but when taken, can breed disease. That's what he has to say to the Pharisees. And, and then this expert of the law speaks up. Now, if you are, if you ever do a Bible trivia and the question is, who's the dumbest guy in the Bible? It's this guy. Because Jesus is like kicking the door down. I mean, he's going, he's leaving nothing, everything's on the court, right? He's throwing down, he's pointing fingers, he's woeing everybody. And this guy, this expert in the law kind of says, um, you kind of offended me. To which Jesus goes, well, I'm just getting started, dude. And boom, he turns. It's like, it's, it's almost like Jesus goes, ah, yes, and you, well, let's talk about you. And so at this point, Jesus kind of turns his conversation from the Pharisees, which are purity-oriented, to the experts of the law, the lawyers of the law, is what some of your translations say, which are those, those who have been the gatekeepers of the word the writers of the custom, the ones who place the copyright on the Bible, the ones who kind of own how it's supposed to be understood. So at this point, Jesus kind of woes three times, 
the, the Pharisees, the practitioners of a false religion. And then he turns to the experts, the teachers, and begins to say, now let's talk about you. And this is what he says in 46. And you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. Do we do that? I would say it this way. Woe to you who preach a, a bad news. I can't even say gospel. That means good news. Woe to you who chronically preach a bad news. As the Lord opens our eyes to see the things that we do wrong, woe to you who lead in relationships with others to say, well, before I tell you about the Lord, before I, I talk about other things, let me just show you the things you're doing wrong. Woe to us who begin to diagnose all of the ills of our friends and family members and place them in front of them as, and create obstacles on the way to the Lord. As though the only way they can come to Christ is by dealing with those issues. Is that how you came? Is that how anybody comes to Christ? Is by dealing with their issues? They come to Christ and Christ deals with their issues. And some of you, we can be real enough to know some of these issues are taking a little while, right? Thank the Lord for his grace and mercy and patience as he deals with our issues along the way. But yet, if we're not careful, we can say, well, Christians don't do that. You can't be a Christian and do that. You know, when we went down, when we first entered into the the Loma Initiative, when we tried to go downtown, and figured out this was our strategy, is we are going to try to find where God is already at work, and we are going to try to find the places in the gospel that the non-believing world already seemed to believe and resonate with, and we're going to start there because we know we agree on that and begin to preach out of it. So we figured all people recognize generosity. Let's go down and be generous because they'll go, yeah, that's nice. And we'll say, well, we, I, we, we agree. We believe in a generous God. We find people down there, they, they appreciate integrity. And people down there, they appreciate excellence. And people down there, they appreciate taking a risky step of faith. Every business on the street saw the risky step of faith we were taking. I mean, they were like, whew, that's a gutsy move. Your church did that? And on those, and that is how we began to have foothold to begin to preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ, is by showing up in their lives where the gospel was already validated and at work. And certain issues of integrity and things that they just understood. That's how God is. That's how we preach a good news. Eventually, always coming to that will be the issue of sin, right? Obviously, we will have to deal with our sins on the way to the Lord. We just don't want to build a huge hedgerow of sin and say, once you figure out how to deal with your sin, then I'll tell you about what to do with Jesus. Jesus said, bring it to me. I think, by the way, we do this most often within our homes, our families. I, I am probably not the best practitioner of a gospel of grace with my children or my wife. I will point out what they did wrong. Woe to us. Here's the next one, 47. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. 
Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. The generation he's speaking to is the generation that has heard and knows of Christ and denies him. Jesus is saying right? Jesus is saying, you're missing me. You therefore are doing what your forefathers did. And there's a sense in the text, what Jesus is talking about is a woe to a people have, who have embraced the religious heritage of their faith, the religiosity of their faith, the tradition and stories of their faith, but have missed the point of the faith. That's what he's saying. He's saying, how is it that you can know the stories about the, the prophets of the forefathers and yet miss me when I speak to you? It's as though they're building a tomb over the prophets and dancing on the tomb of Christ. This is what he's saying. This is what we do as a church when we do not do that which Christ tells us to do. And I don't mean the little purity things. I don't mean the things that keep the outside of the dish clean. I mean the things that pour out the inside of the dish. Love of our neighbors, love of God. When we don't do those things, we run the risk of saying we heard the prophet and just don't agree with him. We, we muzzled the prophet. When Jesus says, Anyone wants to follow me, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Does, does your spirit allow that to be like a really big statement? Can it be bigger than, than you can explain? Can it allow to be a heavy truth of a true prophet? When Jesus says, to the rich young ruler, you have to sell everything you own and give it to the poor and come follow me. Does that always have to be metaphorical? Like, will you explain it away every single time as a metaphor? Where are all the other rich people? We are at the top of the earth. When Jesus shows willingness to embrace the filthy and the unhealthy and the diseased, when Jesus shows no, no reluctance to speak truth in a dark room, he's doing it right here. Don't you think they probably had him to dinner to tweak him and adjust him and canvas him and figure him out and co-opt him, subvert him, recruit him? Does he allow that to happen? Do we allow that to happen? I mean, how often does our fear of this world mute us? It just mutes us. It shuts us down. Is Jesus the Savior? Because he would say, if you reject me as Savior, the condemnation of every prophet from Abel to Zechariah is on your hands. One last woe. I, I know this isn't fun, by the way. 
this is the word, and it comes at us in seasons. So we got fun passages coming too. We'll get there, right? The God's word is balanced. We can't just live off the fun ones. Allow it to push on you. This last one, woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, you and you have hindered those who were entering. This is what we do, I, I believe, church, when we claim to know this and we do not share it. This is what we do. When I think the non-believing world would, would say, if they really have good news, you would expect them to be excited about it. Expect them to do something with it. I think that is a fair expectation for the non-believing world. But when we have this word and we keep it to ourselves, again, when, when, when our faith is so privatized that we possess this word as though it's our singular possession, when we think that God actually did come to save us, God picked us up along the way. God is going somewhere great. He's going and he's making everything new. And he gathered you along the way. Don't you see that? God is restoring the whole earth. God is preaching the truth to everyone under heaven. And you have been given the singular blessing of being included in that number. You don't own this. It's his. I just decided I'm not putting my name in my next Bible because it's not mine. It's the Lord's word. Woe to us. It says this, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Now, I'll close with this. I know these, this, this crowd is a rough crowd. I don't think in this room, I just, I had to think about it. As I'm, I'm like, I don't think they're this. But I will say, like, can we remind ourselves that the same things that are at work in the Pharisees, Pharisees are at work in us. That we were called to hear Christ in this. And Jesus came to turn us outside of ourselves. And so we are by nature internal beings. We're worried about ourselves and our condition and what the Lord thinks about us. And, the, and the Christ came so that we can have confidence and peace in what he thinks about us so that we can therefore be light and salt to this earth. Can you do that? Can you, have you received a Christ who gives you confidence and peace so that you can testify to this earth about his goodness? I encourage you that in the, in the weeks to come. Please pray with me. Lord, you're good. Father, I'm thankful even that you, you spoke difficult words to this crowd because redemption comes in that, Lord. That Even for us, Lord, forgive us for making difficult words a cardinal sin. Forgive us for enabling each other because we have not believed your word enough. Lord, I pray over each spirit, each and every spirit in here, whether they're outside the faith or straddling the faith or headlong deep in the faith, Lord, I pray that they would have ears to hear and that a soft heart to know that we need change. Father, that you did not bring a, a word or a message to the earth of behave and I'll save you. 
you came to a misbehaving world to say, I'll save you and through my power you will behave. Father, through the power of the Spirit, I pray that you would make us a righteous people who care about our neighbors and love you dearly. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.